0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Vertical Space, a podcast at the intersection of technology and flight. We are your hosts, Jim Berry, Peter Shannon, and Luka Tomlinovic. And here we look at the most important forces shaping the market of advanced air mobility, with a particular focus on why and how they matter to those building a business in this very exciting and growing industry
1: is transportation and mobility, which includes air and ground and maritime and everything in between, which is really what we're going to talk about today, and that the, the future of transportation that we're building right now is how to enable this multimodal connectivity so that the key is not just how good is my vehicle or how good is my system, but it's how effectively across cost and time and comfort and emissions and everything can I get a passenger from A to B.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Vertical Space. First, thank you for your positive comments on our discussions. We're thankful we're able to provide meaningful conversation with great guests on such important topics. Hey, listen, it's a lot of fun for us as well. So today we have yet another terrific guest in another great conversation with Billy Tallheimer, CEO and co-founder of Regent. So we've all been hearing such positive news about Regent. But what makes Regent really so darn attractive? They're not just getting orders, as many are, but they're getting firm orders. And they have also recently made news by bringing aboard two top-end advisors, Dennis Mollenberg and David Nealman. I'm huge fans of both. And of course, Dennis has been on the vertical space. Billy makes it clear that Regent is addressing a multimodal coastal transportation opportunity with a novel vehicle, the Sea Glider. And don't call it an aircraft. But are you really convinced that it's not an aircraft? Listen to the use case, the technology, the range of existing battery technologies, and why. But listen to the challenges that others don't have as well. A terrific conversation around the maritime certification with Coast Guard and other organizations versus the FAA and other aviation regulators. Many are enamored with Regent because they've done an underround, so to speak. They've seemingly minimized some of the more obvious risks that others have in advanced air mobility. FAA certification, laning infrastructure, air traffic control and congestion, range for electric aviation, size of vehicle and its passenger comfort, and so on. With assistance from especially Luca and Peter's questions, listen how Regent has their own set of challenges, which Billy so artfully addresses. This exchange is worth your time. I sat back and savored it. Listen how Billy throws his peers under the bus, as he says, as he expresses skepticism on whether or not some of the current advanced air mobility vehicles will actually hit their projected timelines, given what they said they would accomplish five years ago and what they've accomplished since. And the Herculean feats, as Billy says, that some of them have to pull off to meet their objectives. Love the gut punches. I'll be curious to hear your feedback of some of you traditional skeptics of eVTOLs. Do you share the same skepticism with region? Or are they so different that you support their approach? Let us know. Billy's a skilled communicator. He clearly understands his market and his vehicle. He boldly expresses his opportunity and his frank Clear and head on about his challenges. And like many of our guests, Billy is a thoughtful, smart, visionary, and leader. Listen to his advice to other business leaders and innovators, what he learned from working as an intern with Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin, and how he leads his team today, and what technology he thinks you should be focusing on. Many thanks to Billy for joining us and to our listeners. Enjoy our talk with Billy Tallhammer as you innovate in the vertical and
0: maritime space. This episode of the Vertical Space podcast is brought to you by UAVionics. UAVionics is the leader in low size, weight, and power certified avionics for manned, unmanned, and advanced air mobility aircraft. Let UAVionics help you achieve your goals, whether that be type certification, airspace access, or beyond visual line of sight operations. UAVionics has certified and certifiable communications, navigation, and surveillance avionics for your aircraft. So head over to uavionics.com or Google it to see how you can start flying safer and move your platform forward into shared airspace.
2: Billy Talheimer is the CEO and co-founder of Regent. He is a multidisciplinary aerospace engineer and business development leader. He has led all aspects of the aircraft development process, from business case studies and initial drawings, through detailed design and integration, to flight testing and operations. Since co-founding Region in 2020, Billy has overseen growth of the company to over 40 employees, with a commercial backlog of sea glider orders worth more than $8 billion, and raised $50 million from world-class investors like Founders Fund, Mark Cuban, Peter Thiel, and Japan Airlines. Prior to Regent, Billy was an engineer and program manager at Aurora Flight Sciences, where he was responsible for developing new programs in vehicle design and technology maturation to support Aurora and Boeing's portfolio of future air mobility solutions. He also led technical program execution, financial management, and strategy for eVTOL aircraft programs, and worked as an air vehicle conceptual design engineer. Billy holds a BS and an MS in aerospace engineering from MIT. Billy, welcome to The Vertical Space. Happy to be here, guys. Our first question, is there anything that very few in the industry agree with you on? Well, I think the the hardest part of that
1: question, maybe what the fewest agree with me on is uh, what is the industry? You know, I think uh, from from you guys and a lot of the guests you've had, it's this sort of new aviation, new mobility industry. Maybe it's advanced air mobility, but there's an air in there. So. I think my thought is that the industry is actually much larger than anyone thinks. The industry is transportation and mobility, which includes air and ground and maritime and everything in between, which is really what we're going to talk about today. And that the, the future of transportation that we're building right now is how to enable this multimodal connectivity so that the key is not just how good is my vehicle or how good is my system? But it's how effectively across cost and time and comfort and emissions and everything can I get a passenger from A to B?
2: Billy, what would you consider? That's a great response. Mm -hmm. So, and this will be a terrific conversation because yes, this is a multimodal vehicle and capability you're building, but what's the most controversial thing you're doing
1: I think we are making the stance that a, a maritime mode of transportation is a global transformational mode and when people think about maritime transportation question we often get asked from investors from partners and suppliers is okay you're you're building essentially a really fast boat um, how is that transformational is there enough coastal? Uh, movements today that this is going to change the way people travel. And our answer is overwhelmingly yes. You know, 40% of the world's population lives in coastal communities. We've done studies of aviation and ferry routes and coastal rail and bus networks and found well over a billion people a year are moving along coasts or uh, between coastal destinations over open water. So this is a massive market we're serving in a massive use case. uh, and, And people sort of forget about it sometimes.
2: Billy, talk a little bit about the market. I mean, it's smaller than the overall advanced mobility market, at least what people are saying it's going to be in the next 10 to 20 years, but mm-hmm. it's still a sizable market. Can you give us a sense for how you view it? Absolutely. So uh, it sort of depends on uh, what do you mean by market?
1: Uh, and for Regent as the OEM, you know, so we're selling sea gliders, providing aftermarket maintenance for sea gliders and training sea glider crew. Our market is in those revenue streams, but we define our serviceable market via the passenger movements. Uh, So from a passenger perspective, we're serving, again, that 40% of the world's population in coastal communities uh, or well over a billion passengers per year. But we break those passengers into passengers we can serve with existing battery technology at around 180 miles today with with a sea glider today uh, that expands up to about 500 miles by the end of the decade. Uh, And then what we've done in building our TAM is we track each of those passengers. We know what their ticket cost is whether they're on a ferry or an airplane or a train. Uh, we know what fractions of those tickets cost go to the ways that Regent makes money in terms of vehicle sales and aftermarket maintenance. And then we build back all of those parts that sort of go through the operators to the OEMs, regardless of the kind of mode they're moving on, and build that back up into our market. So, in a very roundabout answer, Regent's market is about $11 billion today in coastal routes up to. Uh, 180 miles uh, and up to $25 billion into the future as battery technology expands and enables routes up to 500 miles.
0: Bill, what's the rationale for pioneering in the space of electric aviation, but at the same time limiting yourself to 40% of the potential market from the get go?
1: Uh, well, my background is aviation. My co-founder Mike and I were at MIT undergrad and grad in aerospace engineering. We've been aviation fanatics from the get-go. We're both pilots. Started fixed wing. You know, he went in a helicopter. I went in aerobatics. And then we ended up uh, working at at Boeing and, and Aurora Flight Sciences as aerospace engineers in the early days of this electrification of aviation market. So we're very passionate about aviation, and we saw that wide market opportunity but we, we also became intimately familiar with the challenges, and we sort of got tired of hitting our heads against the wall on two major challenges, the first of which is the certification pathway. You look back through history, and even aircraft that look a lot like the past aircraft that have come out take sort of a billion dollars in a decade, and now we're building them with new materials, and we're gluing them together instead of riveting them, and we're flying them without pilots. All of that just raises the table stakes for what a certification pathway looks like. And on the other side, while well, it's amazing that we can fly people on 100% battery electric systems, we can't get them very far. And when you take into account all the operational realities of flying aircraft, uh, you know, such as the batteries are aging over time, so I don't have the same range at the end of the year as I do at the beginning of the year, those reserve fuels so that if my airport is occupied, I can fly underpowered flight to another airport and land safely. Uh, I might have a headwind. I might need to do a non-direct route because of noise mitigation. You take into account all these operational realities. And by our math, we could only get these vehicles about 50 miles <laughs> with existing battery technology. And there exists vehicles that are going electric that are very convenient and affordable that are even going autonomous that can do the 50 mile mission and they're called cars. (laughs) So, you know, we were struggling with both how do we bring this new technology to market through certification pathways? And what is the real use case of this market. Once we get it there with the ability of the technology and the competing technologies, what we found is that we could solve those two problems. We could both get an expeditious certification pathway that makes no detrimental impact on our safety. We can still assure safety, but go through a different cert pathway via Coast Guard and Maritime Authorities And that we can extend that range, very importantly, by getting some aerodynamic benefits and also reducing our reserve fuel requirements, we can double that range with existing battery technologies. So while, you know, the global market of people traveling, we might only be able to access 40 percent because of our range increases and our ability to get to market. We said there's absolutely a big enough market here, twenty five billion dollars plus that this is a viable product.
0: So does the bull case for Regent include delays in certifying conventional electric takeoff and landing aircraft? I think both conventional aircraft and sea gliders can and
1: will work together. You know, aircraft can do things admittedly that sea gliders can't. They can service landlocked communities. They can do overland flights. Sea gliders can do things that aircraft can't. We're probably getting there first. Uh, We can go a whole lot further uh, and we can also do it Less expensively with uh, much wider, sort of much wider accessibility of the supporting functions of captaining the craft, of maintaining the craft. Uh, so, sea gliders will always be easier and cheaper and longer range. Aircraft will always be able to service land. So I I don't see them as competitive. It's really, are you betting on something that is sort of fundamentally easier to bring to market and easier to support or something that may, in its fully recognized case, have a bigger market, but it's going to take a whole lot more to get there and there's more risk to get there in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And I think they're complementary.
0: So imagine we're five years into the future, perhaps 10 years into the future. You guys are well on your way. And conventional regional electric aircraft have also been certified. Mm -hmm. So in that world, how does the value prop of sea gliders change if you have that conventional electric air mobility on a regional level? And how will people then choose to go the maritime routes versus leveraging point-to-point existing airports. Yeah. So I'm gonna I might throw my colleagues a little bit under the bus
1: here, but um, to answer this question, I'm gonna start with rewinding five years and saying and, and, you know, asking how, how some of the aircraft uh, competitors in, in the space would have answered this question five years ago and they would have said, yeah, in five years we'll be in service, we'll be certified. Uh, This will be a part of the daily operations. You know, this industry really started in that sort of 2016, 2017, 2018 timeframe. And all we've seen is delays in certification, decreases in range as these vehicles have come to market. And here we are, mid-2023, still very, very far away from these operations. So I think if we fast forward five years, you know, Regents and operation in many places around the world uh, where our customers have already put, you know, firm deposits down and are ready for these vehicles. And we don't need any Herculean feats of physics to bring our our vehicles to market. And maybe there's one or two other, uh, you know, aircraft, one or two aircraft in market, but they're not necessarily proliferated, you know, to the extent they're talking about. So I think five years, this is like, you can take sea gliders in these places because they exist and they have the range for it. And, and, in these uh, other much fewer places can you take an EV toll or electric aircraft. Fast forwarding 10 years and now maybe, you know, some of the certification challenges and battery technology has has advanced and been figured out. And now aircraft are a little more available. We'll be on to our larger system. So we're coming to market mid-decade with Viceroy, our 12 passenger vehicle. But by the end of the decade, we'll have Monarch, which is a 100 passenger vehicle. And now we're going to be supplementing and replacing regional aircraft and regional jets and turboprops and even small single aisle aircraft on the ferry side, we're uh, replacing and supplementing fast passenger ferries. So, region's already going to be moving on to enabling our customers, the operators, to provide really mass transportation, really giving sort of the advantages and the and the customer experience of high speed rail for a small small fraction of the development cost, uh, but that same sort of reliability and comfort and ease. Whereas I think in 10 years, we're going to see aircraft just start to really uh, create the the market head that they're talking about now and sort of have been talking about for the past five years.
2: So part of the reason that you're, if I could call you a darling right now, <laughs> is that you're able to provide a capability with a lot fewer of the hurdles that some of your, your peers may have. Mm-hmm. So your ability to get to market quickly with a with a smart of aircraft that could be more easily certified and and you can get to the market as a big part of your appeal. Uh, David Nealman, a, a recent ad to your advisory board said that there's an urgent need for fast and sustainable coastal transportation. Talk about that because that that says that there's a distinct need and in addition to your speed to market. There's a distinct need there. How does that different or in addition to what you've already talked about is the, to the needs of the market. Sure. Well, I'll make one clarification
1: first, which is, uh, you know, you, you said we're an aircraft and that's that's an important differentiation that, you know, sea gliders are not aircraft and that they are sort of their own entity, a class of wing and ground craft that is really a, a hybrid of boats and planes, but it, it is neither specifically a, a boat nor an aircraft, uh, even though it has wings and flies. But for David, while, while I can't, you know, speak exactly uh, on behalf of David, I, I can certainly parrot his his stance that the urgent need for sustainable coastal transportation exists i mean that is obviously one that we share very deeply and the reason for sustainable coastal transportation is that you know localization of passenger movements of just humanity in general along coastlines people love the water you know you think about where the major population centers in the world are and they're along the water you think about how humanity has developed and how transportation really started in the water, uh, across water, which, which created our global network. Uh, and so that's why these big population centers are there. You think about why airports for the biggest cities are often coastally located for things like noise mitigation and, and you know traffic pattern deconfliction. The water is truly the connective tissue of the planet. We don't realize that as much anymore because airplanes can connect. But again, the airports are coastal. Roads can connect. But you think about routes like Boston to New York and L.A. to San Francisco. Those are some of the most traveled regional routes in the country, certainly, and there are many like them around the world, those are both coastal because the population centers are coastal. So that is the urgent need for specifically coastal transportation is that our population centers are coastal, people are moving coastal today. And in the regional mission in this sort of 50 to 500 mile range, there's no good solution. You know, you're waiting in the airport longer than you're in the airplane. You're stuck in traffic no matter when you leave. And so you're going to be in the car for multiple hours. Boats are too slow and rail either, you know, doesn't exist in terms of high speed rail infrastructure doesn't exist in the U.S. Or if you can create that high speed rail infrastructure, you're talking projects that are tens to hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, sea gliders are really filling that niche in that 50 to 500 mile regional transportation need use case on a coastal route, which happens to be a very needed use case.
0: Given the market appeal and the opportunity that you're describing, would you pursue that mission even if electric propulsion was not readily available?
1: It's absolutely uh, an important mission to pursue. And the electrification is really an example of how a bunch of different needs and advances all came together at the same time. So again, uh, you know, my uh, sort of view of the world and the needs and sort of new technologies that, that present a benefit to humanity was formed by my education and exposure and passion for aviation as an aerospace engineer and then as, you know, an engineer and a program manager on electric aircraft programs and eVTOL programs. And so we saw the promise of this electric technology from the sustainability perspective, which is obviously existential and critical but at the same time you know non urgent as in everyone knows that the next the next generations of transportation the, the next new mobility technologies need to be sustainable but no customers will buy it only because it's sustainable that's sort of table stakes but there are benefits across the economics a drastic reduction in maintenance costs and fuel costs the reduction in noise the increase in reliability and therefore safety you know these were all the promises of electrification, but we're in an age right now where electrifying aircraft cannot get them very far. And so in our view, they they didn't target the markets that were most painful for us. You know, I grew up in the Boston area, that Boston and New York route is exceptionally painful. It is known as like the painful route. Um, So we really want to serve as those use cases We sort of dusted off this concept of the wing and ground vehicle and said, hey, if you could electrify this, if you could take all these advantages and promises of electrification, apply it to a wing and ground craft, you could solve both the certification and the range challenges. And then it turned out that in order to unlock the wing and ground vehicle, we had to solve wave tolerance and maneuverability. That's where our hydrofoils come in. That's why sea gliders are different than wing and ground craft. They're the first wave tolerant and harbor maneuverable wing and craft wing and ground craft in history, and that's because of the hydrofoil systems. And to enable the hydrofoils, the electric propulsion was the design case. We sort of started from the electrification in terms of its economic benefit, its sustainability benefit. But then from an engineering perspective, the distributed propulsion and the use of electric propulsion actually unlocked the hydrofoils, which unlocked the operations, which unlocked the whole concept.
2: Billy, before we get into the details of region and what you're doing, and again, one of the reasons you're getting so much attention, is you overcome many of the hurdles that others have in in so many different ways. One is for example, the landing spots, you know, you don't have the same challenges, but you still have a a dock, I assume you have to uh, launch from. So talk a little bit about the infrastructure and then talk a little bit about, quote unquote, air traffic management. I Mm -hmm. mean, you're a sea glider, you're not an aircraft. And so you don't have, you know, those are, these are two of the big hurdles that VTOLs are facing is that, you know, flying from city to city. So let's say we're leaving from Boston Mm -hmm. And we're going down that difficult corridor, which I live on, (laughs) down in New York. So explain how that will work and what are the hurdles other has that you, that you don't have or what unique challenges do you have between Boston and New York and how would it be deployed
1: awesome let's do that route because i'm i'm very familiar with it so and and we'll sort of do like the side by side you know of, of taking your aircraft or taking your seaglider so we'll from the city center we'll drive down uh, maybe to maybe to seaport is where we'll have our our seaglider dock and it's pretty much a, a a dock that exists, very minor modifications to a dock needed to accommodate sea gliders. Charging infrastructure will want to put that there. I'm actually unclear on the state of charge availability in Boston, but I can speak for Miami and I can speak for most of Europe where their ports, whether they're ferry ports or or um, cruise ship terminals, are already electrified because these places are moving towards Electrification of the shore power. You know they don't want these ships running their just disgusting engines in port with with horrible emissions. So they're electrifying the ports to the order of many dozens of megawatts to charge these massive cruise ships, and it'll allow sea gliders to tap off these lines in these places. But I'm not sure about Boston, so maybe we need to bring some charge down to the docks there. But we uh, we get to the port and we just hop on the thing. Maybe we walk through a metal detector, but it'll be a lot like boarding a ferry or boarding a train. We're also going to do our EV toll, which if If we have found a place in the middle of the city with that very expensive real estate, if we have cleared, you know, this air traffic control such that we can move through the corridors over a crowded city, maybe we can hit the vertiport in the middle of the city. But if we're talking within the next five and maybe even 10 years, we're likely going to the airport for this takeoff. And we're talking about regional ranges anyway. We're talking about a Boston and New York trip. So I'm going to assume for this perspective that we're talking about a, a fixed wing, you know, conventional takeoff and landing electric aircraft that can somehow do this range. So we go to the airport, go through security. If you don't have pre-check, take my shoes off, you know, have to walk through the whole airport, get there early. Maybe we're waiting on, you know, the, the pilots because we have this really severe pilot shortage in the US. We have the 15, 000, 1500 hour rule. It's already really crippling regional commercial air transportation today. So maybe there's some delays there. And then we hop on the plane and it's a large plane, you know, it's two to 300 seats. So we're going to wait for everyone to board the plane. Back on the Sea Glider, we're starting with Viceroy, the 12-passenger vehicle. So I hop on. There's 12 other passengers that get on. We board very quickly, and we're on our way. Now, the Sea Glider has three modes of transportation, float, foil, and fly. So as we leave the marina, we're floating. We have fantastic maneuverability in the marina. So we have 12 electric motors, six on each wing. They're very quiet, and we can drive them forwards and backwards. So we can turn on a dime. We can go forwards and reverse. We can move through the marina. Once we clear the marina and the no-wake zones, we rise up on our hydrofoils. So we're directly on route. Meanwhile, once we're boarded on the aircraft, we're going to go out on the taxiway. We're going to work through Logan Airport. We're going to wait for our takeoff spot. Meanwhile, the sea gliders on route foiling through the harbor. Now, hydrofoils as an aviation guy, sort of historically, hydrofoils were like a mind blowing technology to me. And we start to see them uh, proliferate with not only the America's Cup and Sail GP, but also things like e-foil surfboards. But they pick up the vehicle out of the water, right? On stilts, the foils stay submerged. They're essentially underwater wings. We're controlling them actively, by the way, so that the captains of these vessels, the captains of sea gliders are only doing boat controls left and right, fast and slow. But the user experience is almost that of of driving a train. You're locked in on rails. The foils are controlling the vehicle and pitch and roll and and ride height over the surface, even in waves up to five feet. Now we get on route. So we've made it to the edge of the harbor. The the harbor traffic has died down. It's important to note that whenever sea gliders are in the harbor, uh, we're only going as fast as other boats. We're going as slow as 20 miles an hour and as fast as 50 miles an hour. So we get to the edge of the harbor at 50 miles an hour. The captain presses the takeoff button. We gracefully exit the water, retract those hydrofoils. So they're like takeoff gear instead of landing gear. We settle into the ground effect about half a wingspan over the surface, so about 20 to 30 feet over the surface and continue on route. As a passenger, I'm looking out the window. We're an unpressurized vehicle and we're really reimagining the transportation experience to try to evoke more of a ferry or a high speed rail experience and being cramped in an airplane. You know, we've taken A seaplane, we've taken a Cessna caravan, and that is a tough user experience to be crammed like sardines into this little tube, looking out a little window while this incredibly loud PT6 is rumbling and you're shaking with turbulence. Uh, In our case, we're at low altitudes in the boundary layer of the Earth's atmosphere, riding on that ground effect, looking through windows the size of car door windows uh, at this incredible site, you know, just 20 to 30 feet over the water surface. Uh, so the airplane and the sea glider are moving down to New York together. we are I assume we're going to go to Manhattan because it seems like there's a lot of people and business going on there. So the sea glider is going to go into the East 23rd Street seaplane port. We've actually already spoken with the Economic Development Committee in, in New York about this. We've been talking with the Coast Guard about these operations. For the sea glider, we'll actually probably land in the Sound and we'll hydrofoil through the whole East River. And that's pretty important, too, that we don't need to clear Large runways for takeoff or landing, like a seaplane or a flying boat would. We can put it down wherever, and then we can do that terminal distance, even if it's on the order of 12 miles throughout the entire East River, as a boat would, again, on our hydrofoils. The airplane, meanwhile, is getting into the traffic pattern, which might again be delayed for one of the airports in the area, going through your standard, you know, pattern landing taxi going through the airport, dealing with that transportation. Meanwhile, the sea glider has now foiled, floated into downtown Manhattan. You get off and you're ready to go.
2: Who is controlling that sea glider? You don't envision any air traffic control, even though they're above the water.
1: That's correct. Although uh, it's important to note uh, above the water, we are very close to the water surface. So an aircraft is staying with, uh, sorry, a, a sea glider is staying within a wingspan of the water surface at all times. That's below the height of a sailboat mast. That is well below the height of a cruise ship or a or a ferry or or a cargo ship and so that is very much the maritime domain there's no special cutouts today or special clearances necessarily for sailboats near airports it's all part of existing transportation so we are truly following that map of earth you know within the wingspan of the surface flying in the ground effect and as such are totally in the maritime environment. So sea glider captains who will be maritime trained, they'll have their maritime master's certificate, and then they'll go through a sea glider type rating course, will be trained in maritime navigation, you know, red right return, right of way rules, all that sort of stuff. And that is how it works today. And there are fast ferries today. There are hydrofoil ferries today, uh, hovercraft today, you know, and, and those faster ones are moving at speeds of, 40-ish knots or so top speed, and they're able to maneuver in the harbor environment at those speeds. Uh, and that's really the place where we'll see the most traffic, which, again, will be on our hydrofoils at the same speed. Now, we'll augment the captain's situational awareness with a, with a full sensor suite, right? So we'll have a forward-looking radar. We'll be plugging in with AIS, which is the maritime transponder system, very similar to ADSB. Uh, We're investigating things like computer vision for above surface. We'll likely have sonars on the foils below the surface. We'll stitch all of these sensors together and fuse it into a picture that the captain can see. And then at the end of the day, the captain is also doing what maritime captains have always done, which is just looking out the window. Uh, And this isn't just a theory. We've actually done this. So we've taken helicopters and we've flown them 50 feet off the deck in speeds in excess of 100 knots uh, in some very crowded environments. And we've, we've seen first Hand with our own eyes, like there's the boat and we can see it. And we have plenty of time, you know, minutes to, to very lightly change course and still miss the boat by a mile. Uh, And we're also using these same uh, helicopter platforms operating in this sea glider like fashion uh, to hone that sensor suite I was just talking about.
3: And so, Billy, has the Coast Guard given you, or any authority, given you clear guidance on the permissible routings for these routes or the speeds at which you are able to operate in different areas? Certainly, I'm familiar with the Northeast. You know, as one example, will you be permitted to go down the Cape Cod Canal, and if so, at what speed, or are you going to have to go all the way out around the Cape for these types of operations?
1: Sure. So we don't have specific guidance on routing, and uh, this will be something that evolves as we get closer to operations. You know, not all vessels have prescribed, uh, you know, courses while they're underway and, and some ferries do a little bit more. So, it, you know, we'll take it on a case by case basis there. From the Coast Guard's perspective, they are our regulatory authority. From the international perspective, that's uh, the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. So we'll be working with them on all aspects of, you know, vehicle construction, crew training and certification and, uh, you know, eventual operational authority as well.
3: Okay. And now down at, you know, even at these very low altitudes at which you'll be operating, you will be in an area where drones may be operating and drones may be in the future deployed in a variety of maritime and fisheries management type missions. Do you have a strategy for how you're going to deconflict with drones or do you have any interfacing with the FAA that you're going to need to do around that question?
1: So we've been interfacing with the FAA since, you know, the founding when we had the, the FAA and the Coast Guard on a phone call and we were talking about this international precedent for the, the various types of wing and ground craft and how the US would handle it. And we've had similar conversations with, with other countries where our customers are. Regarding the, the drone issue, you know, we've not specifically dug into that one. I would say that the having that many drones at that low altitude is not only going to be a problem for sea gliders, it's going to be all vessels on the water. So Solutions that are put in place for the true proliferation of low-altitude maritime-based drones is going to have to be something that works within the existing construct of maritime operations, and sea gliders will sort of fit into that picture. Uh, it's in,
3: interesting to consider whether you might equip with the ADS-B, even though you're not an aircraft as a way to deconflict, but it's, I guess this is the flip side of the gray area, you know, in between maritime regulations and aviation regulations that, that you're going to end up having to walk into. For
1: for sure. And I think that's, you know, part of the unique opportunity we have in terms of defining what that maritime situational awareness suite looks like. Vessels will have a moving map or something. Uh, Aircraft have the six pack plus, right? So what does that user interface, that human machine interface look like for a sea glider? We're actively developing that and we're working with the Coast Guard and we're working with DOD to, to say, you know, what is the right information that is presented to the sea glider captain? And how can we give them, you know, max maximum situational awareness on the water and in the relevant altitudes.
0: What are ports or the Coast Guard or the relevant authorities most concerned about when they hear your pitch? What are the key risks that they flag?
1: I think to, to some extent, you know, the, the first one, and this is sort of looking back, this is, you know, before we achieved our approval in principle with Bureau Veritas, which is akin to the aviation cert basis, you know, that was a big deal to to get to that recognition of, you know, these are the rules of the road. And if you build to this spec, you know, we will classify your vessel of the sea glider and and give it international class. But to to get to that point, like when we are first sort of talking to the different classification societies, uh, and classification societies are are independent bodies, you know, can sort of make decisions on what they support. There was certainly some apprehension, right? They they hadn't seen a vehicle like this before. Maybe they had heard of an acronoplan or or seen a wing and ground uh, in in the past. But I think to some extent, there's a, there's, there's sort of, add associations with it or, or you know that's that's just an anachronoplan that was that was some crazy thing they did in the 60s uh, or that's just some you know hobbyist working on a vehicle like this most of these societies had not seen a team and a technology come to them uh, with the technical rigor that we have, coming to them with the aviation background, where we were expecting, you know, a very meticulous and arduous certification process, and rightfully so, because we're going to be flying millions, hundreds of millions of people on these vehicles. Uh, and so we need to assure that safety. So the next step was sort of, okay, this, you know, get over the, the hump on this is new. The next step is, okay, your your thing has wings, and it flies, and we do boats. And and then we got into the details of, okay, well, what does that mean? And you you talk about the structures and, and the the structures or the structural analysis is still the same. We're still talking uh, carbon composite structures and loading cases and failure cases. And to some extent, Maritime actually leads in that space. Like that's why we're building our vehicle with with a combination of boat builders and airplane builders, but boat builders have been using composites for a lot longer than airplane builders have. So, okay. So they can analyze that. And we're looking at wings, but you look at, you know, sails on boats today, you look at hydrofoils, like those are wings and lifting surfaces with the, with the requisite level of, you know, fluid analysis and structural analysis behind them. So we can sort of translate all of the technical aspects of the vehicle into a maritime body and say, you know, a lot of this expertise already exists. And then from there, it's it's really a similar process to an aviation where we're talking about, you know, which systems and which components have the most risk, have, you know, the, the most associated hazard with them as we go through our, our failure trees and things like that. And let's spend the most time uh, on ensuring those systems are safe.
0: When your operation begins to scale, and now it's not just a couple of sea gliders, but there's ports full of them and the intensity of the operations increases. What's the impact to existing port traffic, port infrastructure, port systems that you expect to receive some pushback on? And perhaps as an analog, we can look back to the ADSB conversation with drones and how mm-hmm. air traffic control prohibited small drones from using ADSB out in fear of saturating the spectrum, in fear of just increasing, multiplying the workload on air traffic controllers, what's the equivalent in your case?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be targeted at port infrastructure. You know, coastline is limited. And so as we think about where do sea gliders move, admittedly, at least the Viceroy sea glider has a, has a pretty long beam, right, or, or wingspan. So, uh, you know, there's some uh, special considerations in terms of how we move it around in, in a crowded harbor. I'm particularly interested going back to Boston and that Boston and Nantucket route. So uh, Nantucket's a rather tight harbor. So, you know, if you think about scaled operations of this, how, how are you going to move these sea gliders by each other in the waterways. So that, that's probably one of the first places where, where you'll uh, experience growing pains is those small harbor operations and limited coastline operations. I think from the operational perspective, um, there's a potential to even get better with scale because the sea gliders are, are always, you know, we have these sensor systems on them. They're all emitting on AIS. They're all sensing things. And there's this opportunity to share the data between them. So now we can actually build up this really fantastic, you know, multi-sea glider informed picture of of the maritime environment. So I think it'll be more on like near harbor operations and and infrastructure. Just we need to build more docks. We need to build more terminals to accommodate, you know, uh, larger passenger movements.
0: And when you were talking to the FAA initially, were they concerned about the flyaway failure mode, for lack of better words? of somehow a failure in the flight control system. And now all of a sudden you start interacting with the national airspace system.
1: It, it puts the onus on us and the maritime certification effort to ensure that these vehicles are restricted to flying within ground effect, right? So th- there is as much a risk from that perspective of flying up Uh, And entering that airspace system and, and, you know, a potential collision there or something as there is flying down and impacting the water at a high speed like you need to ensure that you don't do either. So, you know, that that uh, pertains to our certification pathways and our redundancies and robustness on the automatic flight control system to really lock in that
0: altitude in all conditions. So speaking of certification pathways, can you describe what the certification strategy is?
1: Yeah, so we'll uh, be working under maritime authorities in the US, you know, the Coast Guard wrote us a letter and copied the FAA to say that they'll be our certification authority. And so uh, that look, you know, the first step with the Coast Guard is called a design basis agreement, which is, again, sort of the equivalent of the, the cert basis in Maritime, we work through more of a bespoke like vessel by vessel construction, which is actually a, a pretty amazing concept compared to an aircraft. You know, with an aircraft, you need to do your type certificate, your airworthiness certificate and your production certificate all at the same time. You need to bite off all of that work and all of that risk at the same time. Now, of course, once you're done with that, you can just start cranking off airplanes off the line and you already hit it. But that costs a whole lot of money, which all, a lot of these companies are raising in venture to do and takes a whole lot of expertise and time. The construct in maritime is more on a vessel by vessel basis. That's how maritime works in general. So, uh, you know, you you create your approval in principle, which is on the class society side, on the international side, or a design basis agreement, which is with the Coast Guard on the U.S. side. You follow that vessel and they will actually have inspectors come and visit you and ensure that you are building the vessel to the specification and then you approve the vessel right so on the coast guard it's it's a certificate of inspection that they have inspected your vessel and that it met the the design spec that you built it to and then you enter service so that's actually from a you know from a startup perspective from a capital efficiency perspective a much more capital efficient way of bringing your first vehicles, your low rate production vehicles to market because you can go onesie twosie. And what you do from there is now you start building up this concept of a type certificate. And this already exists in maritime today, but it's on the component side. So our strategy will be that we will, you know, start with uh, a motor, a battery, and and we'll type certificate the motor or the battery in the maritime context. And then we'll combine them into a propulsion system. And now we'll have a type certificated propulsion system, which becomes a type certificated wing, which eventually becomes a type certificated sea glider. But in this way, we can sort of smear out that, Very admittedly, like that is a difficult, that is a a very involved intensive process, very capital intensive process as well. But we can sort of smear that out over our production. We can still ensure every vessel, every sea glider that comes off the line is safe and built to spec. But it starts onesie twosie with inspectors actually coming to your facility and visiting and it ends with that type certification after you've actually been
0: in market already. So even though the process seems different, I imagine that the safety thresholds when you have passengers on board must be the same, correct? The same expectation of safety. So do you end up having the same kinds of safety and design assurance type discussions that you would have with the FAA?
1: Absolutely. We're having those discussions and, and have had those discussions with both Bureau Veritas on the class society side uh, and are having those uh, discussions with the Coast Guard now as we move towards our design basis agreement. And it's the same sort of thing. You know, we we create our uh, risk matrix and we identify what is a catastrophic event as a, and a hazardous event and assign probabilities to those. And those probabilities scale to, you know, what the, what the occurrence rate of that specific failure is. So from, you know, a catastrophic failure event, one where, you know, you lose multiple lives, that can never happen probabilistically once in the entire life of the entire fleet of vessels that you make. And so you can work the, the math back from a utilization perspective to inform those probabilities. And now we have that same risk matrix, uh, you know, that, we're, that aircraft are certifying to.
0: So given that similarity that you're just describing, what makes those discussions with maritime authorities easier? And if, if we just you know maybe extend the analogy a little bit further, maybe this is overly sort of stretching the, the analogy, but if you had an electric or any other aircraft that's just flying at extremely low level mm-hmm. at 20 feet above the water... How is the safety discussion different in your case? Is it just the fact that you can dip down and land on the hull? Mm -hmm. Is that how you mitigate a lot of these things? Because at the end of the day, you're still flying at relatively high speed with persons on board.
1: Yeah. So from the safety analysis perspective, it is the same. You know, you're, you're worried about loss of flight control or propulsion. You're worried about, you know, high speed impacts, which could be hazardous or catastrophic on the water. The fact that we are always over the water, the fact that our hull design uh, is this deep V shape that sheds wave energy uh, and can maintain high speed impact and designed in a similar way to to power cat boats that can already do speeds of 100 to 200 miles an hour on the water, uh, literally jump off the surface, you know, 10 feet in the air and come back down and and keep on ripping. Uh, The fact that we're using that sort of structural analysis and and failure case uh, is gives us, as we're drawing our failure tree, uh, sort of coverage for certain failure events right that if you impact the water at a certain speed in a certain certain orientation you're okay now from a probability perspective you still have speeds and orientations that aren't okay and so by this you know probabilistic analysis and the way that we're certifying aircraft today as well as sea gliders uh, you need to ensure that that gets below your your risk threshold right or your probability threshold but that is certainly you know one way of saying okay like we have another means of handling failures of this kind, because if you had these failures over land, that becomes a, a catastrophic event every time. And in our case, it's a catastrophic event only part of the time. But I think in general, sort of taking a step back and talking to uh, the, the entire certification process the aviation certification process is very prescriptive. I think the FAA was founded in 1958 or thereabouts. That is well into the jet age. Aircraft really haven't changed much since 1958. And so when you look at how the FAA certifies, when you they certify on a functional basis, but those functions are representative of a configuration. So you certify a fuel system and you certify an engine. And now I am an electric aircraft manufacturer. I'm going to the FAA saying I want to certify this aircraft. And they look at my batteries and they're like, well, is that an engine or is that fuel? And the answer is simultaneously yes and no. And it's that sort of you know square peg in a round hole sort of concept. That is one of the reasons why this certification process has become so burdensome. From the maritime perspective, the same maritime authorities need to inspect and classify vessels that range from, you know, a passenger fast ferry, to a hydrofoil ferry, to a hovercraft, to an oil tanker, to an oil rig rig machine. All of them are passenger safety critical. We're sending people across the ocean. We have people living overnight in a vehicle that's drilling for explosive substances. So they're all safety critical, but they're all completely different. And to accommodate that and to still ensure human safety on these vessels, the maritime authorities have created a, a much less prescriptive system. It's really where the FA wants to go as they went from, you know, Amendment 62 to Amendment 64. They want to make this more performance-based and risk-based when and they're taking one step at a time. But Maritime was, was really founded in this. And so we start with the risk matrix, we start with the configuration, we start with the fault tree analysis, and then we dive down into those places that have, you know, the, the least amount of maturity or the highest risk and, and highest, uh, you know, impact from a, a catastrophic failure perspective on the system. And, and that's the best way to really certify new technology.
3: Okay, Billy. So in the discussions with the maritime authorities to certify this aircraft, you're going to have that conversation. And are you going to as part of your safety case, make the assertion that in the event of a failure, you will always be able to execute a graceful landing on the water? Because obviously, as pilots, we know that landing an aircraft on the water is a delicate maneuver, and it can be very unforgiving if it's not executed the right way. Is that part of the design and the safety cases? No matter what type of failure the aircraft may experience over the water, it's still going to be able to execute a Graceful landing at the right speed, et cetera, as the uh, mitigation to that risk.
1: So it it all needs to be from the from the probabilistic perspective, right, and in, in line with the risk matrix. So so any aircraft today are essentially saying the same thing, but there is still. The, there's still the, the potential, there's still the probability that you lose all control or, or lose all power and, and have to put the aircraft down over land in, in some case. And, and the whole point of that certification process is that you can drive that risk below a certain probability, right? So ours is the same thing. And the, the way we will get there is to say the system is designed with high levels of redundancy to ensure that never happens. There's always a, uh, you know, Incredibly low probability chance that it does happen. And then a fraction of those cases are covered by our structures and being down over the water. But baseline, the system is absolutely designed with the redundancy from the sensor system to the flight control system to the uh, flight software system to the propulsion system to always be able to execute that controlled landing. Now, importantly, a, a distinction between aircraft and sea gliders is that the, the captains of sea gliders are not in direct control of the vehicle. They're not commanding uh, pitch and roll and, and even necessarily altitude directly. You drive a sea glider like you drive a boat the uh, operator inputs are left and right and fast and slow, and then you have your mode change buttons. And so you can mode up from float to foil, you can mode up again from foil to fly and the vehicle will execute the takeoff, retract the foils and settle in a ground effect. It'll control, it'll coordinate turns, it'll control altitude, it'll reject gusts while it's flying in that ground effect, but it'll do so automatically. And then you know you press the land button and, and it'll coordinate that landing itself. Uh, and that was important because your point about the safety of near earth or near water operations is absolutely well taken. It was one of our founding principles of seaplanes and especially wing and ground craft do not have the greatest safety record. Uh, But when we interviewed those pilots, they, they spoke to the incredibly high task load of flying a wing and ground craft. We, We found them. There's like, there's a handful all around the planet, but we found them and we interviewed them. And so we said, you know, that's what we need to fix. And to do that, we're going to abstract away the dangerous aircraft parts of the operation. We're going to have systems that can actually handle that, do that with an envelope protection system and our operators will just drive these things like boats.
0: I'm curious to learn when you're interacting and talking to the maritime authorities who are used to seeing and certifying boats, And yes, there are all kinds of different boats, but ultimately they all share a very common, same sort of set of design choices. And then you come to them with an airplane. Do they find themselves out of their depth quickly? Do their eyes glaze over and say, well, we don't really know how to think about certifying an advanced fly-by-wire flight control system. We're not really sure how we're wedging an airplane into a maritime regulatory domain. How are these discussions coming along?
1: We, we haven't found that at all. I mean, I'll, I'll speak to, you know, we are further along on the international level than we are on the domestic level. So I'll speak to our interactions with Bureau Veritas so far on the class society side, but they, they approached and said, we've classified all different kinds of systems. And I'd actually, you know, I I'd, I'd contradict a little bit that all boats are the same because I mean, an oil rig is, is not at all, you know, a boat. It has, pylons, it has a drill, it has living quarters, uh, and, and they need to ensure the safety of that. Um, There are also flight control systems in effect on the water. So hydrofoil ferries, which exist, you know, the Boeing 929 has a flight control system on it uh, because it's up on its hydrofoils and it's going 40 to 50 knots. Um, So as we draw these parallels and and walk through, you know, in in this case with Bureau Veritas, the classification societies, we can draw these parallels uh, and, and they have understood it. And I think, you know, Bureau Veritas has certainly been very forward leaning and working uh, through with us on our approval in principle, uh, and now into, you know, the, the really the working levels of our classification.
0: And do these maritime authorities turn back to their aviation counterparts and say, hey, what do you guys think about this particular challenge and, and risk mitigation in the air domain, or are they really two separate systems?
1: I think that's always a potential, you know, and and we'll we'll be the first to admit, you know, we're relatively early down this process. We've come up uh, on the international side with a rule basis. There exists a, a rule basis for, wing and ground put out by the IMO in agreement with ICAO, but under the the ownership of the IMO for wing and ground internationally. And then with Bureau Veritas, we picked up that document as sort of the baseline. We're going to use the IMO WIG rule set. We're going to add all these other rules to it, these standards, in some cases, pulling from aviation standards, like on propellers, for example, like it made sense to pull from aviation standards. Um, So we, we sort of put that together uh, and we can move forwards on that. But we have agreed to the rule set now, you know, we're at the cert basis side. So, uh, you know, we're talking about entry to service mid decade, we still have a ways to go in this and and it's absolutely, you know, within the realm of the possible that the maritime regulator Hires independent consultants on the aviation side, does something like the FAA does today in terms of hiring a DER, or a DAR, some sort of, uh, you know, third party that, that has delegated authority um, or even contacts, you know, aviation authorities for, for help or advice or advisory or something like that. So we're, we're working through that process with them.
2: Billy, who do you see operating the aircraft? Do you see conventional airlines? Do you see new organizations? Sorry, the sea glider. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> You were about we to correct got- me. <laughs> so, who, Who's going to operate it? And I mean, listen, you have billions in orders and some of them are firm orders. Who yeah. are they? What's the common denominator of the operators? So the, the common denominator of the operators is that they see
1: this coastal and overwater market as a problem that needs to be solved, and they have operations there. So our customers are actually roughly split 50-50 between uh, ferry operators like Brittany Ferries and FRS Ferries, you know, some of the largest ferry operators in the world, and airlines. So we have orders from Mesa Airlines and Mokulele and Southern Airways Express. We have strategic investment from Hawaiian Airlines and Japan Airlines lines. Uh, so, you know, Hawaii, Japan, you, you obviously some some fantastic, you know, maritime island hopping routes there. But even from some of our U.S. mainland operators looking at routes uh, like Miami, looking at routes like Manhattan to the Hamptons, Boston to uh, Nantucket, L.A. to San Diego or San Francisco, the Pacific Northwest, uh, moving into the, the ferry markets uh, in the Mediterranean and, and Italy and Greece across the English Channel. So, you know, we, we're seeing all of these markets. And sort of the cool thing is a, a route exists. It often happens that on these sorts of routes, there are both aircraft and you know ferries that service it. And so both become interested in our, in our technology. So it's actually been really interesting to sell to these two very disparate operating customers, these two very different verticals from the get-go, sort of learn the language of each, learn the operating economics of each. Uh, each one brings something to the table in terms of familiarity, uh, to sea gliders that the other doesn't, but also in terms of you know what what the bar is, what what that hurdle to, to bring sea gliders to services. And, and both have them because sea gliders are a new mode of transportation. You know ferry operators are very familiar with the maritime environment, with the berthing, with uh, you know how you work in the harbors and the docks. They're less familiar with the speeds. They're, they're less familiar with, are you going to be able to have the situational awareness? They're the ones that are driving at those questions. They're the ones that made us get in the helicopter and figure out ourselves, like, is this actually real? Can we do this? On the aviation side, they're very familiar with this sort of network model, scaled operations, moving vehicles around because they're so fast and they can do longer range. And so obviously, hurdle for the airlines is, well, how do these interface with our existing air networks? Are we going to combine them with coastal airports? Or are we going to operate bespoke sea glider line entities that are working from docks? And if so, how do we you know, train crew and handle luggage and things like that?
2: What's the cost of the, of the sea glider seaglider? And what's the cost of operation vis-a-vis alternative, you know, you talked about the Boston to New York route. I mean, that's an expensive flight. It's an expensive rail trip. Yeah. So, I mean, the really important factor for our customers
1: who are the operators who are doing, you know, largely commercial operations, I'll speak about it in a cost per available seat mile, which is interesting and and also, you know, industry specific in and of itself, because the, the ferry industry doesn't actually have a set standard of you know, what, what is their figure of merit? You know, the, the ferry industry is very sort of route specific, regional specific. This vessel does these sort of operating economics on this route. Maybe I have a, a per passenger per route metric, but they don't have an integrated metric like the airline industry does in chasm and cost per available seat mile. Uh, but from a, a chasm perspective, and, and this is really where electrification comes in, you think about how aircraft age and they age by the cycle. Uh, So, you know, they impact the landing gear, they heat up and cool down their engines, they expand and contract their fuselages with pressurization, depressurization events. Uh, Every time you take off and land, you do a cycle and those cycles lead to your maintenance events and therefore your maintenance costs and your overhaul time and, and all of that sort of stuff. As you shrink the route length you can jam more cycles in a day. So you're just aging out these aircraft faster and faster and faster. And often your your revenues and your margins are going down on these shorter routes because the passengers aren't paying as much for them. Uh, so suffice it to say, the the economics of short haul are not great for conventional aircraft. What you really want is an unpressurized all electric vehicle that truly ages by the hour instead of by the cycle. Uh, so when you think about it, you know, aircraft can get say 20 to 30 cents per available seat mile if they're doing long haul, but you take those same planes, uh, a turboprop, a a large regional jet, even a small narrow body like a 737, if you make them do, we'll use in this case, repeated 100 mile missions, and you drive them every day on these repeated missions for 8 to 10 hours, uh, they're about in the mid 40 cents if you look at smaller vehicles uh, that would not even maybe do uh, you know, coastal routes like a, a Grand Caravan on floats uh, or a Twin Otter on floats, those are upwards of 60 cents a seat mile. Uh, so our Viceroy 12-passenger vehicle can do it for 40 cents a seat mile. It can provide the same economics as a long haul aircraft, really where these, you know, where a small narrow body or large regional jet are meant to operate, actually a a little bit cheaper, they can do 40 cents a seat mile, which is a 40% cost savings over these other small aircraft doing these repeated 100 mile missions, which are all well in excess of 60 cents a seat mile. Then as we scale, and I said, you know, Viceroy is our first vehicle, mid decade, 12 passengers, Monarch is our 100 passenger vehicle, that's the end of decade vehicle, that has the cost per available seat mile again. So now we're talking 20 cents a seat mile. That's half the operating cost of you know an ATR 42 or 72 or a CRJ 900 or a 737, A320, any of those vehicles. So we're talking about being able to have the operating costs for our operators who are operating aircraft today. Uh, and that is a transformational savings. And that's that's one that can either be maintained by uh, the sea glider line, right? Or the airline, but the sea glider line. Uh, in terms of margin, it's, it's savings that can be passed on to the passenger uh, with cheaper tickets. they would likely split the difference, but importantly, it's upside for everyone. And you capture that savings because of the reduced, largely because of the reduced maintenance costs.
3: And, you know, looking at the operating costs and comparing that to conventional aircraft, you're operating in a maritime saltwater environment. And Mm -hmm. what do you have to do to overcome the hurdles associated with that? How do you mitigate the saltwater factor and keep your operating costs on that aircraft down?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a great point, you know, thinking about it from the seaplane perspective, like why are seaplanes so expensive? You're taking Uh, small aircraft, which are already fairly expensive, and you're putting them in that saltwater environment, you're running saltwater through a a jet engine and putting it in a combustor and you're corroding all the pieces, you end up doubling to tripling the maintenance cost of like a a normal land-based caravan versus a a caravan on floats. Uh, So it is a significant problem there. Our sea gliders are designed from the get-go to operate in that saltwater environment. So, you know, all of the structures are uh, carbon composite. Um, The motors are sealed bearings. The components inside are meant to operate in that environment. We are designing with uh, either, you know, corrosion preventiveness or uh, sacrificial corrosion areas that we know will corrode in mind. And that's why we have so many boat builders on the team. And naval architects are the team. They're used to designing vessels that live and function in the saltwater environment.
0: What do you estimate the annual unit demand for your sea gliders to be, and how does that compare to the Grand Caravans, for instance?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's sort of uh, similar to the use case of uh, of a caravan uh, in terms of The size, we can actually carry a thousand pounds more of cargo than a caravan can, uh, at least within our, you know, 180 mile range Um, from Regent's perspective, uh, you know, getting into the sort of high, high double digits to to low triple digit production per year on the 12 seat viceroy uh, and then ramping up monarch to sort of a a similar level is is what we envision. And, you know, our our eight billion in orders are sort of indicative that that is the case.
2: Understood. So you're in Rhode Island. So you don't see a whole (laughs) lot of aircraft companies or I should say, I'm going to use the word aircraft. You're not seeing a lot of aviation organizations coming out of Rhode Island. (laughs) I, I have to guess the maritime connection is a nice one. So, you know, why Rhode Island and how is it finding the kind of talent you need in an area where you don't usually see aerospace, although you see a lot of maritime talent?
1: Yeah, well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, the aviation roots of Rhode Island and that some of the first aircraft and and flying boats, the, the, the Gallaudet aircraft, was invented here and the, the designs were sold to uh, PBY and sort of eventually manifested into the Catalina. So, we, you know, we have those aviation flying boat roots uh, in our blood, so to speak. But no, it's, it's, it's a fair point. So, you know, we were founded in the in the Boston area, you know, had, had a lot of uh, sort of MIT influence in the founding team. We looked over the entire country, you know, we're like, it's, it's not clear that this is the best place to found. So where should we put Regent for, you know, maximum probability of success down the road? The, the primary driver was the waterways. We had to be able to test uh, our vehicles on waterways. So we wanted both uh, sheltered inner harbors uh, where we could test with lower waves and wind in the early stages. But then we also wanted ocean access so we could bring the sea gliders out and really put them through our paces. So um, that narrowed it quite a bit. Uh, then we wanted, you know, sort of a a city nearby with an airport with with at least decent connectivity. We we couldn't be in the middle of nowhere, so that narrowed it a little bit. Um, basically, actually ended up narrowing us down to uh, Boston area, uh, Rhode Island, and Tampa Bay. Uh, So then it became uh, a topic of talent and, you know, we did our our talent studies uh, and it turned out that even inclusive of the Space Coast, when we drew our rings, uh, we found talent. So the talent we have in Rhode Island very specifically is that naval architecture, maritime composites, you know, best in the world boat building talent from the racing yachts here. Uh, And then very nearby, you know, we have academia. Uh, and some industry in the Boston area from the schools there. Some you know that's where we're getting a lot of software and, and flight controls. Uh, and then we also have big aerospace, not not too far away in Connecticut, right between you know Pratt and Sikorsky. Uh, and so actually within larger New England, it, it was a great place to base because we have maritime where we are. We're surrounded by aviation, and it turns out for any radius we drew, more of the the key. Uh, people that we needed compared to Florida, so then it became Boston versus Rhode Island, and then it really came down to uh, incentive packages and real estate. Rhode Island uh, lured us with an incentive package worth up to thirty million dollars here, which is pretty exciting, and then potentially even more. So exciting is the the space we have here that we're in this uh, Quonset Park. We're near Electric Boat, which does uh, you know the the nuclear submarines and has built a sprawling campus, and we have the roadmap to the exact sort of campus here. All within five minutes of the water. All within, uh, you know, uh, industrial zoned infrastructure. We have thirty thousand feet right now. We're planning on opening two hundred thousand feet uh, for Viceroy manufacturing by twenty twenty five. Uh, and an additional four hundred thousand square feet of manufacturing for vice uh, for uh, monarch prototyping and manufacturing and parts distribution and maintenance by twenty twenty seven. So we have this fantastic roadmap here. We never need to move again. You know, we said we we're going to move the team once, and then this is going to be our home for the next decade plus. Uh, and we found all that here,
0: Billy. What's the rationale for being an OEM as opposed to an operator as well? I mean, the argument of being a pioneer in this use case. You know, having a first hand experience in operations and see how the customer actually uses and interacts with the product would be very beneficial in informing the successive of design iterations and perhaps even greater value capture.
1: Uh, the answer is absolutely ruthless prioritization. You know, we are uh, inventing a, a new mode of transportation. So there's a lot of education that has to be done there. We are designing it, manufacturing it, certifying it to be safe and then also working through you know, how we train crew and do aftermarket maintenance. So from that technical aspect, we have an enormous amount to do. And we made the decision very early on that we're gonna focus on what we're good at, which is designing the aerodynamics and hydrodynamics and flight controls and flight software of the sea glider system, we're going to go horizontal across, you know, sourcing the parts. We're going to buy motors and batteries and flight and flight computers and actuators, even aerostructures from companies who are focused on that. And then so, too, it made sense to partner on the operational side to leverage the networks, the, the passenger relationships, and even, you know, the, the ticket booking systems of our operators, of the airlines and the ferry companies who are in existence today. That's how we felt it was best to bootstrap a new mode of transportation other than trying to do the Entire thing and take on the world ourselves.
0: Mm. What's the biggest risk in, in your business plan that you're still needing to retire
1: at this point? You know the phase we're in right now. So it, we've already retired the technical risk. We know sea gliders will work. We've flown them. We've done all of our transitions. You know, you think about EV toll, and the hard part is in that hover to fly transition, uh, which some companies have done, but some haven't yet. You know, in our case, we wanted to retire the technical risk. Of the foil to fly transition, which was the technical hard part, as early in the process as possible. So we've done that. We've also, you know, written uh, software that controls the vehicle at that low altitude flight and ground effect. Currently, our our major risk is. Execution risk. You know, we're building our full scale prototype. We plan on flying humans on board that full scale 15000 pound system by the end of next year. So this is really just can we get our parts and execute and ensure safety for the human crew of of that prototype sea glider vessel on the timeframe we're thinking of. And then the next step for us is bringing it to market, where it becomes a manufacturing risk. You know, it it is another whole process, again, to spool up that low rate manufacturer. And of course, the certification risk. And we have to acknowledge that. You know, while uh, Coast Guard has and, and, uh, you know, Bureau of and maritime authorities around the world have certainly uh, certificated many different vessels of many different types, the sea glider is a new thing. So we, we absolutely admit that there is, you know, risk in that certification process, as is there risk in, you know, EVTOL certification processes, right? None of this stuff has been done before.
3: And so Billy, with this path of you know going with a wing and ground effect craft and working with the Coast Guard, and as you say, avoiding having to do the uh, full set of certifications up front, you know, type certification, airworthiness, production, all of that. What do you say to the the counter-argument where there are people that have the mindset that says, look, I want to run towards the regulations because having clear regulations laid out for what I need to do effectively puts thousands of people behind me, uh, helping me make the craft and operation safe. And what do you say to that counter argument that that might actually in the long run be a faster and lower risk path for the company?
1: I think the more you front load with with work, period, the more risky a venture. I mean, most most of the companies in the space outside of, say, EVE are venture backed, and so there is an incredible time value of money there. All of these things take time and therefore money. And so the art of bringing new technology to market is to always bite off the lowest hanging fruit because you can always raise more money at higher valuations in the future. And so you're like, how can I de-risk the key things now? And, and for us, how can we ensure safety of this vessel when we bring it to market? And we can do that by focusing on the technology and focusing on how do we bring the first one to market and then the first two to market and ensure that safety with, uh, you know, the the capital that we have. And then how can we prove from that success case? And investors love success cases and milestones. Once we hit that milestone and we show revenue, how can we then bite off the next more expensive apple of showing that we can do it repeatedly on some process?
2: Billy, do you have the capital you need for the next couple of years to be able to execute your plan?
1: we're closing our fundraising round very soon, so uh, we're we're imminently uh, at that point absolutely very confident we'll we'll be able to get through the the next few years and uh, human flight of the sea glider
2: you've started a new business you've learned a lot since the beginning, and you have a bunch of entrepreneurs on the line. Give them some of the lessons learned from starting your business that you think would help them in their ventures awesome
1: i I'll, I'll share a few here uh, The first is you really got to want this you know if you're founding something new and it has the ability to be transformational, you are going to have naysayers. You're going to have hundreds of investors turn you down. You're going to have people that don't understand it. If it was something that was easy or something that everyone got, it would have already been done because there are a lot of smart people that have lived and existed and tried to do hard things before you. So you're starting to ask yourself like, why is it you that's going to do this? Why is this idea so special? And, and are you 100% confident that you'll execute on it or you're at least going to give your all to execute? Uh, and you need to maintain that drive in the face of constant naysaying and constant rejection uh, and constant doubt. Uh, because in general... You know the world is is opposed to change. Like on the surface, people are like yeah, new stuff. But when it comes down to the details of it, like change is hard. It requires new training and new infrastructure and new switching costs and new processes and all this hard stuff that you know companies that are driven by bottom line don't want to do. Um, so I think you just need to understand that as a founder, like this is a, a long hard road, and you have to really believe. But that is sort of the the validation and reward at the other end as you start to see you know as you start to see people in the public get over some of these obstacles as you de-risk some of these you know early concerns of the naysayers uh, along your plan then uh, it is so incredibly rewarding when when other people start to you know repeat your messaging and and say yes you know that can be solved and look at how your company did these few things. It's it's a long road and I'll be the first to admit that Regent hasn't really done anything yet. You know we, we've we haven't made a sea glider. we haven't flown people in it. We have proved a lot along the way. We've proven that a sea glider is possible and that float foil fly operations are possible. We've proven that there's a massive market for it, at least interest, if we can build what we say we will in both commercial and defense. But to me, you know, we we haven't really achieved our objective until we deliver sea gliders to our customers. And there are passengers flying around sea gliders and cargo being moved all over the world.
2: At scale. I mean, given that clearly this is a dramatic change in how people are moved between cities. So and my guess is most of your prospective investors get it. It's a really easy concept to understand. What's the most typical reason a prospective investor would walk away from the investment?
1: I'll give you two. The first one was, was I think the the very first question we talked about today, like, okay, so you're constrained to waterways, you're constrained to 40% of the world's population. Is that really transformational? Is the market big enough to generate venture returns? Because at the early stages, you know, that's how the, the VCs think about it. You need to generate hundred X class returns because they're expecting the you know, they need their portfolio of 10 companies to 10 X and they expect nine of them to die. So you're going to hundred X and return the whole funds. That that's the, the basic back of the envelope math they're doing. Uh, so we've absolutely heard some investors turn us down and say, we just don't see the market as being big enough for venture returns. Whereas the ones who have backed us have said, yes, we see this as a transformational market and we get it. I think the other one is sort of just the the general fear that it doesn't work, and it, it's sort of funny because when I when I press investors who turn us down, and, and believe me, many have turned us down, and I always press. I'm like, why specifically? You know, I'm an engineer. I need that like I need that delineation, that certainty. So you know what? Well, okay, you said technical, but like what technical part are you concerned about? And they often can't say. And you know, eventually, in the early stages, it was like, well, we want to see a glider work, and then we built a glider, and it worked, and then well you know, we want to see people on board, the full scale thing, and we're going to hit that milestone. And they'll, they'll probably say, well, you know, we we want to see it in operation, we want to see it certified. So I think there's always that next stage of risk reduction. Mike, our co-founder sort of commented that even, even pertaining to our prototype itself, you know, some of the feedback was, well, we don't think it can fly, we want to see it fly. And then we flew it, in like, well, that landing looked a little tough. And we're like, yeah, you know, that's all part of the evolution here. That's developing new technology. So that that's, I think, the other reason when we're doing something that's so new. you know. It's not another electric aircraft. It's not this very known thing. And I'm going to change one part of it. I'm going to electrify the engine, so to speak. And that is my you know, transformational new technology. We are doing, the operations are new. The way this interfaces with existing transportation systems is new. Of course, the vehicle is new. Even to some extent, the CERT pathway is new. Because of all that newness, there is inherent, at least a perceived risk from some of these investors. And so there's always this, well, you know, Let's let's see the next thing. Um, but I think, you know, we have found some fantastic backers to date. And, and we've been, you know, incredibly, uh, you know, humbled and fortunate to have investors like Peter Thiel and Mark Cuban and Founders Funds, uh, our strategic investors like Lockheed and Japan Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines and Yamato, who's doing, you know, logistics in Japan. Like we built up a, a really fantastic group uh, of backers who, who believed us early on.
2: Have you approached Shuttle Airlines? Have you approached a Delta, for example, where they you know they own so much of this Northeast route? And what has been their comment about this offering?
1: Or uh, are certainly, I would say, we're in conversations with all of the major airlines. Some airlines see, you know, so backing up, there's sort of three models where sea gliders can work for an airline. The first is sort of the, you know, your null hypothesis. It's like we're going to replace aircraft with sea gliders, right? So that's like an inter-island in Hawaii. You can actually like replace the, the caravans uh, and SOBs that, that Mokulele is flying today with sea gliders. Uh, the next one is sort of the EV toll mission. It's your hub feeder, but instead of you know a 50 mile radius around lands, now we have a 180 mile radius along the coastline, and so that's working with the airlines to say this is how we feed into your coastal airport. Look at all your airports. It turns out most of them are coastal. You may have not even realized that this is how we're going to connect. This is how this is what the passenger experience looks like as they clear airport security and have their baggage transferred from aircraft to sea glider. And then there's this really interesting third one that most don't recognize, which is a bandwidth alleviator. So you think about these large airlines like a Delta, and they're running large aircraft between hubs, but a large aircraft with with, you know, high margin on tickets that can take many passengers occupies the same runway space and the same runway slot as a small puddle jumper. Uh, And in many airports, uh, at least in the U.S., The the constraint on making more revenue there is not a passenger perspective. It's just a slot constrained perspective. So we go in and say, look, for example, in Miami, we can offload this regional traffic. We can offload these these tens of millions of people who are doing routes to Key West and the Bahamas and and up and down the coast of Florida. We can offload them to a regional sea glider network, free up those slots for more large hub connecting aircraft. You can still connect them into your network. network and now you have the revenue opportunity of the seats. And we've done the math on that and it's order about half a billion to a billion dollars a year in some of the large coastal airports in the U.S. just freeing up these slots.
2: You spent some time with Jeff Bezos when you were an intern at, I think, Blue Origin. How has it changed your leadership style?
1: Uh, Jeff is definitely one of my heroes. And I, I found it amazing that, you know, for a guy who's running amazon this this global giant he comes to blue origin and has lunch with the interns like fully attentive lunch and he, he he's asking us you know our names and what we do and then he comes back to us later in the conversation and, and he remembers that like that was that was amazing the level of attentiveness that a guy like jeff could have at an intern lunch uh, and then at the end of the year you know he sat front and center and watched all of the intern presentations it took hours And that he would dedicate his time for interns, you know, the lowest level of an organization to have that level of attentiveness Mm -hmm. because he knew the importance and he knew that we were the future of his company or that if he gave us this attention that A, we could have good ideas that would possibly affect his company or B, we'll go out into the world, but we'll at least have good things to say about Blue Origin and and him. That spoke to me from, from just his priority perspective, that of all the things that Jeff could be spending his time on from Amazon to blue to anything. He decided to set aside a few hours to sit front and center and grill interns and grill. He did like that. That was also when I realized, you know, his, Hmm. his brilliance too, was like, I had been spending, you know, I've been living and breathing when I was at blue, uh, transparency. So windows for the spacecraft and like, I got so deep into the weeds on windows and he came front and center and he knew every detail about the windows And he had like read my charts and like he knew everything about it. I was like, this is an amazing level of attention to detail Uh, and, and just spoke to me as, you know, a need when you are scaling massive things and trying to take on world changing technologies. You still need that presence and that attention to detail. And you always need to be thinking about what's next in that next generation. Um, and, you know, we, we actually just started our internship program. Uh, one of our interns is in the room with me here, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, and it just spoke to me in terms of that
2: importance. You earlier mentioned when Luca asked you about how you were different from the other, some publicly traded VTOL companies today, you said, well, let's see if they actually make the plans they're going to have in the next five years. Okay. If you were going to bet on one of them, which one would you bet on? Oh, man. Which, oh, which okay. one are you most you don't which one are? You, which yes. one do you believe is, is most likely yeah. to achieve what it hopes to achieve in the next five years?
1: Yeah, I, I'll I have two answers here. From a personnel perspective, and I know you just had him on the show before. Brian Yetko is my former boss. Uh, I think he's absolutely brilliant and incredibly capable. So I, I think Whisk found an amazing leader in him. And I think, you know, what he sets his mind to, he can do. And and I know they have an awesome team over there because I used to be in Boeing Aurora working with that mm-hmm. team. So only great things to say about that team. From an operational perspective, I think Volocopter to some extent has chosen the most constrained use case. You know, they're, they're not going to transition. They're going to do short hops. You know, they're focused on uh, just being uh, very affordable uh, and, and you know, maybe similar to my methodology here, like biting off the lowest hanging fruit and and showing, you know, what can we do first? And we're not going to have to go through this very aerodynamically and, and controls complex transition. So I, I think Volocopter is, is probably on pace for achieving their goals.
2: With all the work you've done, again, with the entrepreneurs at the line, what would you challenge them on? What What's needed today that you think that they should be inventing or bringing to market or... You know, further selling what they already have based on what you see in the in the need of the sea glider or the advanced air mobility markets.
1: Sea uh, gliders rely on batteries, for sure. So, you know, we've seen a lot of development in battery technologies. I think the interesting thing about batteries from the level we interface with the batteries is, you know, we we don't buy cells; we buy integrated packs, and so there is. All of the opportunity in cell chemistries and energy density of the cell and manufacturing of the cell. But then there is also all the technology in the pack because you need to contain thermal runaway. Uh, and you need to um, control heat and you need to vent gases and all of these things and that is a technology system in itself, especially when you consider that the next generation of cells like the lithium metal cells are going to be expanding and contracting and you're going to have to you know keep them under pressure as they're discharging and all these different considerations so the the packaging is al- almost... I would say, you know, as important as, as the cell to some extent. So um, it's been really exciting to see, you know, our, our battery vendor for the the full scale prototype is EP systems. And we've seen, you know, other battery manufacturers in the space really pioneering in that space. I, I think that's only growing as electric aviation as a whole grows. Uh, and then I would say the other one is just from the, from the sensor perspective, you know, those sensors, as we've talked about here and, and, maneuvering and navigating on, on both the maritime environment and also as, as aircraft are you know proliferating in the skies, developing these sensor technologies, uh, these detect and avoidance systems, eventually going towards autonomy. And there's absolutely a use case for autonomy in sea gliders, actually probably a, a, a more accessible one. You know, you talk about low hanging fruit. I would much rather build, uh, design and build an autonomy system for a 2D environment with large, slow-moving targets rather than a 3D environment with very small small, fast-moving targets, definitely take maritime over aviation. So I think that whole, you know, sensor system, autonomy, detect and avoid, uh, as we've also seen uh, some companies start to pioneer in the space and both the aviation and the maritime sides, is going to be one of the other sort of supporting industries.
2: Billy, is there anything we haven't asked you that we should ask you to be, as it relates to maritime sea gliders or as it relates to the company? Is there any other message you want to send to our audience? I
1: think... Uh, Two things, you know, one is to uh, keep an open mind. And when you hear about how sea gliders operate, and if you're sort of initially filled with skepticism, I I would challenge you to challenge your assumptions. You know, the the way people move today is not necessarily the way they move in the future. The way companies have tried to tackle these new transportation issues is not necessarily the right answer. None of them have made it to market yet. And so, you know, challenge your assumptions and sort of explore what if when you hear about a sea glider. Uh, And then the other is that Regent is hiring and growing, and we are rapidly moving towards full-scale flight of a human on a sea glider by the end of next year and enter to service by mid-decade. So uh, we've built an awesome team here, a world-class team here, uh, and we'd we'd love to have more. So hope we get some people out of this as well.
2: That's great. Very exciting. Thank you, Billy. Luca, anything else from you?
0: I'm good. Thank you, Billy. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your time and for sharing your thoughts and insights. Really enjoyed the conversation. Jim, Luca,
1: thank you so much. And it was awesome to be on.
0: All right. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Vertical Space Podcast. Reach out if there are topics that you would like us to discuss. And goodbye until the next episode. Unless mentioned, this podcast is in no way endorsing or promoting any person and or company mentioned, and all opinions within the podcast are solely that of the presenters. The vertical space makes no guarantees, warranty, or representation of any information given in this podcast. Any information given is for informational purposes and should be used at your own risk. This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only.